trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather together in a nation where we have freedom to worship you, freedom to teach your word, freedom to witness, freedom to evangelize, freedom to apply your word as we see fit. Father, we thank you for those who are willing to serve this nation, for those who are willing to serve overseas, those in the military. We pray for you to pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe, give our leaders wisdom. Uh, We pray for those who are from this congregation that you would watch over them and strengthen their families as they wait for them to return home. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to study your word, that we can, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, see how these things apply to our own lives and our own thinking, that we can uh, revamp and overhaul our thinking so that it is consistent with your thinking and therefore consistent with reality. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge that it presents. We pray these these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning. Well, we'll just wait and not open to a particular passage to begin with. We are continuing our study of the ascension and session of Christ. I thought it was interesting that last week while I was gone on vacation, when Charlie Clough came in to take care of things while I was gone, we did not even discuss what, we were, what I was teaching. And he came in and gave a probably a fine introduction where I'm going over the next two or three weeks. And what he taught just fit right in. So obviously the congregation needs what I'm teaching in both hours. I thought it was interesting uh, coincidence in the plan of God that while I'm teaching on ascension and session in the first hour, he came in and covered that from a different dimension, different perspective. And then second hour, I'm teaching on the faith rest drill, and he came in and taught on the faith rest drill second hour. So obviously the congregation must be in desperate need <laughs> of both of these doctrines. Now, we got into the study to just to remind you of why we are where we are. We are in the study of the ascension of Christ. 
because of Ephesians chapter 4 and its relationship to spiritual gifts. We're in our study on 1 Corinthians, and we've come to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is the section, the most extensive discussion by the Apostle Paul on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul connects the giving of spiritual gifts to the ascension of Christ. And that brings in an interesting and important dynamic for understanding why we have spiritual gifts and the purpose for those spiritual gifts. But before we get into that, I want to review where we have come from in this study under ten points. First of all, we ask the question, Why did Jesus need to ascend? What is the function of the ascension within the overall plan of God? We noted, first of all, that when Jesus came at the first advent, it was not clear from Old Testament prophecy that there would be two advents. There was just the promise of a Messiah. The Old Testament taught that there were glorious aspects to the messianic appearance and suffering aspects to the messianic appearance, but it did not distinguish between the suffering Messiah as one advent and the glorious Messiah as another advent. Therefore, point number two, Jews misunderstood the prophecies about the glories and the sufferings of the Messiah, and they wanted the crown before the cross, the glorious Messiah before the suffering Messiah. Because they had their priorities wrong and they were focused on the wrong thing, they were not responsive to the message of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples when they came. Under point number three, we saw that John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed the same message. That was a message of repentance that was directed to Israel and not the Gentiles. And that message was simply, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea of repentance is based on the Greek word metanoeo. It doesn't mean remorse. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins or anything of that nature. It had to do with a change of thinking. And the Jews were to think differently, and they were to reject the legalistic, religious facade that the Pharisees and Sadducees had put upon them, and they were to go back to the grace principle that was outlined in the Old Testament. So the issue for the Jews was a thought change in order to bring in the kingdom. It was a true, legitimate offer of the kingdom by Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, they rejected that offer so that near the midpoint of his public ministry, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of performing his miracles by Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. This was the official rejection of Jesus by the nation Israel itself, even though there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of Jews that responded to the Messianic proclamation. The nation as a whole rejected him. The nation, as represented by its leaders, rejected him, and that led to the postponement of the kingdom. So we saw as a result of that point number five that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. The people of the kingdom had rejected their king, so the king had to expand his base. Now, this is crucial, and this is what we will see foundationally in our study over the next couple of weeks, is that this sets the stage for bringing in the church. So the ascension is necessary for the next stage in God's plan, which is to create a new people that goes beyond Israel. 
we have to have a warning here that we're not talking about replacing Israel with the church. I have used the terminology in the past, and will continue to do so, of replacement theology. And replacement theology is the idea that Israel is replaced by the church, that when the Jews rejected Christ as Messiah, God then rejected Israel, and the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament related to a literal, physical kingdom for Israel were no longer going to be applied to Israel, but instead they would be applied to the church in a spiritual sense. Now, replacement theology is a theology that undergirds almost every, well, it does undergird every major denominational theology. Roman Catholicism, Lutheran uh, theology, Reformed theology, Presbyterian theology are all based on some form of replacement theology. It is only in dispensational theology where you have an understanding that there is a distinct plan for Israel as God's earthly people and a distinct plan for the church as God's heavenly people. And they have distinct purposes in the plan of God and distinct destinies and distinct spiritual lives. And if you don't understand this, then what happens, which is what happens in replacement theology, is they try to take the Mosaic law and the morality of the Old Testament and make that the basis for the spiritual life of the church. And that completely misses the importance of God the Holy Spirit. And one thing that we have seen is that in John 17:6, Jesus had to ascend before he could send the Holy Spirit. And so the ascension is connected to the giving of the Holy Spirit, who becomes the foundation of the church. All of this is connected. Now, we have the warning is that we are not talking about a replacement of Israel with the church, but that God goes to, in effect, a plan B that applies the strategic victory of the cross to a new application in relationship to the angelic conflict. And we have seen in our study of the ascension that when Jesus ascended, the passages in Ephesians chapter 1 and Hebrews all emphasize that he ascends through the heavenlies. He ascends spatially through the heavens, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is given authority over all the angels, all the principalities and powers and authorities, which is a reference to all of the angels and the demons in his humanity. Because in his deity, he was already in authority over all of the angels. But in his humanity, he is now placed in command over everything in the creation. And this sets the stage then for a new element in the angelic conflict because there is now a human being seated at the right hand of God the Father who is in charge of the universe. And so what happens as a result of the cross and Christ's strategic victory at the cross is that there will be a new tactical application in the life of believers through the church-age believer and this relates to both the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not simply a matter of understanding the ascension in terms of the fact that Jesus has gone to heaven, which is how most people understand it, and that's fine. But we're going to probe this doctrine, and as we probe it, we're going to discover that it 
is connected to a, an entire web of doctrines and scriptures that are rarely understood. Now, this leads us to the sixth point, which is that since his people rejected him, the next stage in the plan was to bring in a new people to fulfill certain objectives related to the angelic conflict. Since the Jews rejected him, God is going to take the plan to a new level, call out a new people, and this is going to be a, a unique people based on a spiritual heritage, not a racial heritage. That leads to point seven. To bring this about, Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after the crucifixion. He physically, spatially ascended through the heavens, the Scripture says, to the right hand of God the Father. And that was in order to send the Holy Spirit to give birth to the church on the day of Pentecost. Point number eight, immediately after the ascension, Jesus was honored by God the Father in heaven and given the highest position in the universe. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Important terminology. He's at the right hand of the throne of God and not... Here, I've been going through all of these points. There we go. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God above all the powers, authorities, angelic and human. This seating of Jesus is called the session. This is the technical theological terminology, the session, from the Latin word sessionum, which refers to the act of sitting. So the ascension cannot be separated from the session. The ascension takes place in a matter of minutes. Jesus ascends. We don't know how long it took place. We've gone over the passage in Acts 1 where the disciples watch him go up through the heavens, but within a matter of seconds or minutes, he's out of sight. And then he goes through the heavenly. So we don't know how long that took, probably not more than a few minutes. And he's at the throne of God, and he is seated. So what is going on now? Why didn't the kingdom come in? What is it that God is doing in history that must be accomplished before Jesus can establish the Messianic kingdom. And what we will see is that this current church age, which has lasted almost 2,000 years now, has a vital role to play in God's plan and purposes with relationship to the angelic conflict. Now that leads to point nine, that during the session, Jesus is not passive but is involved in calling out a new people which will play a unique role in establishing a testimony to God's grace and power in the angelic conflict. And these, these are the ones who are being prepared to rule and reign with him in a future kingdom. So a new people are being called out, and they're being prepared for a special role. That is what's happening. That's, why spirit, that's how spiritual gifts fit in. We live in an age when people are so absorbed with themselves and so absorbed with finding uh, self-improvement and self-advancement, self-fulfillment, that what you normally find in a local church when they teach on the spiritual gifts is nothing more than a lot of self-help techniques and um, skill techniques transferred over to the spiritual gifts, and they're taught in some sort of a, a talent 
uh, program as to how to figure out how you can serve the Lord, and you have to do this very soon when you're a believer. And it's nothing more than typical sociological uh, practices that have been imported into the church. And it feeds ego, and it feeds, even though it's, in the, it's cast in the, in the framework of serving in the local church, it appeals to people in terms of their self-absorption. How can I serve? What is my spiritual gift? How do I know what God has given me? And what we're going to see here is that spiritual gifts go far beyond what God's done for you. It is the training program that God has for each individual to prepare them for future responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. Now, once the ch- this concludes in terms of the summary, point number 10, once the church is complete and has completed her mission, then and only then will the Messiah return in victory and establish the Jewish kingdom. So the kingdom has been postponed because God is doing something unique to, with the church-age believer. Now, to understand the realities of the ascension and the se- session, New Testament authors went back to the Old Testament images in order to flesh out the full implication of the truths that were not clear or explicit in Old Testament context. You see, once the ascension had taken place and Jesus passes out of the sight of the disciples, they no longer know empirically what's going on. I mean, where did he go? He just disappeared. How do you know? He's at the right hand of God. How do you know what is happening? And in order to answer that question, they had to go back to Old Testament passages and Old Testament contexts where these images were presented in order to flesh this out. Now, we have to be careful here again because we're not saying, and I'm not saying, that the church is found in the Old Testament. However, what is happening right now is found in some senses, is found in the Old Testament, but in a in a way that it was not clear to the original readers of the Old Testament. But once we get into the New Testament, these things uh, then become clear. Now, there's another warning here, and that is that as we go into this study, it is not a study for the weak. If you're a fairly new believer, you're new around here, this may challenge you a little bit, but we're used to that. We have to, we're going to see once again that you can't understand New Testament doctrines and realities of the spiritual life if you don't have a firm grounding in the Old Testament. That everything in the New Testament is ultimately grounded in Old Testament understandings. And as we go through this study, we're going to get an extra special bonus in that we're going to see why a dispensational approach to Scripture is the only system that gives us a full appreciation for everything that God is doing in history. Now, those of you who are new and haven't gone through the study on dispensations, I encourage you to get the tapes and go back through the the series on dispensations and covenants I did a couple of years ago because that lays the foundation for what dispensationalism is and why it's important. Now, as we get into this, There's a web of verses 
that are quoted in the New Testament, from the Old Testament, mostly the Psalms, that are quoted again and again and again in the New Testament. They come from Psalms like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Psalm 132, a couple of other places, but they're quoted again and again in the New Testament. And in order to understand why they're quoted in the New Testament and the impact we have to go back and understand them in their original context. Now, I'm not going to take the time to exegete through all of those psalms. We don't have the time to do that. But we're going to hit them in the next couple of weeks in order to see what their original context was and how this impacts uh, our understanding in the, in the New Testament. Now, to give you a, a kind of a beginning framework of where we're going, I want to just show you some of these verses. For example, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, that is, our admission and acknowledgement of Jesus as Savior. Now, in this passage, what we're going to see is that the Old Testament, or the New Testament, this doctrine of ascension, is going to bring together some key ideas, some key doctrines. And this relates to the deity of Christ and his title, the Son of God. relates to the title, the Son of Man. It relates to three or four key psalms that we're going to uh, be studying. Now, in Hebrews 1.3 we read, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. That indicates that Jesus is fully God. He is full deity. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, that last phrase is a quote from Psalm 110. Then we look at Psalm, uh, I mean, at Hebrews 1.13, where we read, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? That, too, is from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the, in the New Testament. Then in Hebrews 1.5, we have a quote from Psalm 2. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This comes from Psalm 2. Then Hebrews 7:17. For it is attested of him, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what we're trying, trying, what we're tying together from Hebrews 4.14 is the idea that Jesus is our great high priest, but he's not an Aaronic priest. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That comes from Psalm 110. Then we go to Acts 5.31, where we're told, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So this is a quote from Psalm 110 and ties it to God's ultimate plan for Israel. And then in Hebrews 10:12 and 13, we're told again of the session of Christ, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting. This brings in the idea that he is waiting for something. This is an interlude, but something is happening, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. This is again from Psalm 110. Then in Acts 2, we have 
passage in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost where he states, And so because he was a prophet, that is a reference to David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne, he referenced that is a reference in, in Acts 2.30 to Psalm 132. And then four verses later, Peter says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. That's Psalm 110. And then a final verse we'll put up here. It's in Acts 3, 20 and 21. That he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke from the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient times. And that term, period of restoration, is a reference to the future millennial kingdom. Now, The reason I've gone through these verses in just such a superficial manner is to impress upon you how many times, and this is just a sampling, of how many times New Testament writers go to Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Psalm 132, Psalm 68 with the Davidic Covenant, and pull these things together in order to substantiate what they are saying about what Jesus Christ is doing in heaven now and laying a foundation for the unique spiritual life of the church age. Now, they're they're not passages that are teaching about the church, but they are passages that clearly prophesy the current session of Christ in heaven, the fact that there is a waiting period before the kingdom will be established, and that something profound is being accomplished by God during this time period that takes the whole plan of God beyond the nation Israel. And what we will end up seeing is that under these Psalms, we're going to see two issues of kingship. The first is that Jesus is the king of Israel, and this relates to his title, Son of David. This is going to be emphasized in passages such as Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 89, Psalm 132. And then in a couple of other passages, the emphasis goes much broader. He is taking a people, he will be the king of all peoples and tribes and nations. And this takes him to another level where he is represented as king of all mankind. And this relates to the title king of kings and lord of lords. And this is going to be developed out of Psalm 110. Now, as I showed from all those verses I referenced and many more, writers of the New Testament continuously go back and they quote from these passages, specifically Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, but also from the other Psalms, in order to establish these points. It's extremely complex, and it's also a sort of an added bonus. It also deals with one issue in particular that is at the very core of the Uh, difference between replacement theology and dispensational theology, and we'll get into that when we look at the Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 3 passages. 
So what the ascension does is bring together this interconnection of all of these different things from the Old Testament. First of all, we have four Messianic Psalms that are brought together. Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Psalm 110, plus Daniel 7. That means to really understand the ascension as something more than Jesus going to heaven, you have to control some crucial passages in the Old Testament that are quoted and referred to again and again and again in the New Testament. And if you don't have a correct perspective of interpretation, correct understanding of prophecy, then you're just going to blow this whole doctrine, and you'll never understand its implication. And that's why so little is said in the standard systematic theologies that are produced from non-dispensational backgrounds. As far as they're concerned, Jesus just goes to heaven. They can't deal with what he is doing, and they end up spiritualizing everything, which ends up destroying God's plan and purposes for Israel. So we're going to deal with four Messianic Psalms. Secondly, we see that the term Son of Man and Son of God, Son of David and King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be more fully understood. Third, we will see that the Davidic covenant is the foundation for understanding all of this. You have to understand what goes on in the Davidic covenant. And then fourth, it's going to bring in the doctrine of the Melchizedekian priesthood from the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So all of these elements come together. So you thought the ascension was just a simple little doctrine about Jesus going to heaven. But it goes far beyond that, and it lays the foundation for what Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are doing in the believer's life today. Now, back to Ephesians 4, 8 briefly. We saw there, we started there, where Paul quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 68 specifically. It says, Therefore it says, that is, Scripture says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a quote from Psalm 68, 18. But there are some notable differences between the two passages, the most significant of which is that in Psalm 68:18, the psalmist says, You have received gifts among men, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, changes that from receiving gifts to giving gifts. Now, if we're going to understand the significance of this Old Testament quote, we have to go back to Psalm 68. Now, remember, in Ephesians 4, Paul is dealing with a very practical problem, and that is disunity in the local congregation. And he begins by saying there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we're all one in Christ. And then he's going to develop that into a discussion on the spiritual gifts as and their role, the leadership spiritual gifts, and their role in developing that that practical unity in the congregation. So here he's dealing with a very practical problem, which is a lack of unity and division in a local congregation. And what does he do? He goes back to the doctrine of the ascension. Now this goes completely counter to modern thinking. Well, what do we want to do? We want to use some kind of psychological procedure and get the people together in a room and say, okay, what's your problem? 
uh, why do you react to this person and why do you react to that person? And we want to use some sort of psychological approach to problem solving. What Paul does again and again and again is he goes to what we think in modern, in the greatness of modern man's thought, is some esoteric doctrine, some theoretical principle that doesn't seem to relate. And the reality is that we have to change the way we think about problem solving. If you don't have the, the in a sense, the theoretical framework down, and by theoretical I mean your abstract rationale, if you don't have that abstract rationale down, then all you're, you're, you're nothing better than a pragmatist running around using Christianity to solve your problems instead of understanding what God is really doing in your life. And the result is that we have a lot of Christians who think that God is nothing more than some genie in a, in a book, and if we rub it the right way or say the right words or repeat the prayer of Jabez enough times, then God's going to give us everything that we want. And we have to learn how to think in terms of God's ultimate structure of the universe and what he's doing in in human history. So if we go back to Psalm 68, we'll pick up the original context. We'll go back to verse 16 in Psalm 68. David is writing, and he says, Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Now, here's the point. What's the mountain that God has designed for his abode? That's Mount Zion. That is the location of the temple in Jerusalem. It is not some metaphorical allusion to heaven. So surely the Lord will dwell there forever. And again and again we see in the Psalms that God has chosen Mount Zion and he will dwell there forever. Verse 17, the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Now this brings in the idea of, of a military picture, the chariots of God. It pictures God at the head of an army, and that he is involved in a military campaign. And in point of fact, what David is doing is going back to Sinai, going back to the Exodus, to show that God began a military campaign on behalf of Israel in the Exodus, which culminates in an event that took place in David's life. Verse 18, he says, You have ascended... On high, and have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. So, what's happening in verse 18? You have ascended on high. This is a picture of military victory and taking the high ground. Last time we went through the principle of military principle of taking the high ground and saw how that worked itself out in a number of major. Uh, battles in history. We looked at uh, the Battle of, of uh, Long Island in the Revolutionary War, Gettysburg in the war between the states, Iwo Jima in World War II, and then we saw the failure of the principle at the uh, Battle of Quebec that occurred in the 1740s between the French and the British. And this is a picture of the Lord, who is frequently called the Lord of the Armies, translated Lord of Hosts, but it's actually Lord of the Armies, ascending victoriously on Mount Zion. So the historical image starts with the campaign that God begins on behalf of the Jews in bringing them out of Egypt, and then this 
is pictured as culminating, although uh, Israel has not completely taken the land. It is pictured as culminating once David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and establishes the presence of God on Mount Zion. That is taking the high ground. That is the context of Psalm, Psalm uh, 68, 18. It is a military background for taking the high ground and, and achieving victory. Now, to, now, verse 24, David says, They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. That gives us the historical context of Psalm 68. In fact, one commentator wrote that understanding the background for Psalm 68 is one of the most highly debated and controversial questions in the study of the Psalms. And for some reason, this passage is ignored. This sets the context. It is when David brought the ark into Jerusalem to the place where, to the threshing floor of Aruna, where it would establish the presence of, of uh, of the temple. Now, what's the context of Psalm 68 itself? We have to go back to the first verse. We learn that it is a psalm of David. Now, whenever you read that something is a psalm of David, what you ought to be thinking is, how does this fit into the flow of history in the Old Testament? Is this before or after the exile? It's before the exile. We learn that by looking at the time of David, that it is at a time in Israel's history when the monarchy and the kingdom is being established. In fact, under David and his son Solomon, Israel reaches their highest point of development and the highest point of their culture in terms of application of the Mosaic Law. So this is in the stage of the development of the kingdom of Israel, the United Kingdom in the Old Testament. Now the verse begins, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and those who hate him flee before him. So again, it is a picture of conflict. But there's another element to this that is often overlooked, and that is that the word, the verb arise, is the Hebrew verb kum, which in the Psalms is almost always used for God rising in judgment. Again and again and again, you have verses where the psalmist calls upon God to rise up and pay attention to a particularly unjust situation, unfair treatment, uh, where, and this is indicated even in, in this passage, in, uh, for example, Psalm 12:5, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in the safety for which he longs. You see, the concept of God arising is coming to the just aid of the needy and the afflicted. Psalm 17:13 has the same idea. Arise, O Lord, confront him, that is the unjust person, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. So the idea of kum rising up is a cry to God to the supreme court of hef- heaven to interfere in human history in some way through the execution of justice and righteousness. So what we're going to see again in this study is the central role that God's integrity plays in this study. So the concept of rising up is a call upon God to 
interfere to inject himself into human history on the basis of his integrity. Now, this integrity is not understood as something that is just abstract. The justice and righteousness of God for a Jew is not just appealing to an abstract principle of God's justice and righteousness. This is the God, Yahweh God, who's entered into a covenant or a contract with Israel. That's what the Old Testament covenants were. They were basically contracts. So there's a legal relationship between God and Israel, which was established by the Mosaic Covenant. And God said, bound himself to certain procedures in the Mosaic Law. And one of those was that he would look out for the welfare of the nation. So when the psalmist cries to God many, many times to rise up and to protect the widow or the orphan or the needy or to execute justice in some situation where there has been a personal injustice, the foundation for understanding this is that God has contractually obligated himself to Israel as their protector. And so it's a cry to God to fulfill and to bring about what he has promised in the Mosaic Law. So that means that to understand Psalm 68, we really have to go back to those foundational episodes in the history of Israel. And we find this same terminology back in Numbers chapter 10. This is a situation when the Jews are engaged in warfare against uh, the inhabitants of the land. And in Numbers 10.35, we read, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, What? Rise up, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. So when we come to Psalm 68, and we see the terminology, Rise up, O Lord, and we see that the terminology of the Lord ascending up on Mount Zion, it's not just terminology that operates in a vacuum, but it is terminology that is rooted in God's covenant relationship with Israel and in what God did back at the Exodus. So this terminology relates to God bringing victory over the enemy for his people. And it is specifically related to the function of the ark, which is the physical representation of the indwelling presence of God with his people. This is fulfilled. The, the back, actual background for Psalm 68 is seen in Psalm, I mean in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is when David brings the ark into Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 6:12, we read, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God. And that has the idea of its ascension. It goes up. Brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Now, here's where we're bringing in another concept. This doctrine of understanding the ascension, understanding all of these allusions in Scripture, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, is going to challenge and stress your understanding of the Old Testament. Here we see this picture. We have to keep this in mind. We're not going to get to Psalm 110 this morning at all. But in Psalm 110, what we will see is this statement that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So we're going to have to understand the, or, the whole concept of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem. Later, that city was later known as Jerusalem. Salem means, from the, from the Hebrew word shalom, means peace. Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem. He is a Gentile. He is not a Jew. In Genesis chapter 15, after Abraham defeats the, um, the uh, armies of the five kings, he pays tithes. He gives a certain amount of the booty that he had recovered from these invading five kings from Mesopotamia. He gave that booty to Melchizedek. Now, I want to show you how all this connects together. He's giving the booty to Melchizedek, and that imagery of giving the spoils of the victory is the image that you have in Psalm 68 of God receiving gifts, and it's the image of, of Ephesians 4 that because of the ascension and the strategic victory of Christ on the cross, he is now able to distribute spoils and booty in terms of spiritual gifts and blessings to the church-age believer, spiritual gifts, blessings, spiritual assets that no other believer in human history had ever been able to have. So we're seeing certain themes weave themselves in and out of all of these passages. Well, the Melchizedekian priesthood was a Gentile priesthood. It was not only a Gentile priesthood, but it joined together the function of church and state in one individual. The Melchizedekian priesthood preceded the Abrahamic covenant because God doesn't begin to give the covenant to Abraham until Genesis chapter 12. But Melchizedek is already alive and functioning as a priest king before God begins to call out the Jews. So it is a distinct priesthood, and it becomes the foundation for understanding the priesthood of Jesus Christ because he is a priest forever according to uh, the order of Melchizedek. And this is what David is doing in 2 Samuel chapter 6. As he's bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, every six paces, this must have been a lengthy procession, every six paces he would sacrifice an ox and a fatling. What kind of function is this? Is this the function of a king? No. This is the function of a priest. But David can't be a priest. He can't function as a priest because David is of the tribe of Judah. He is not a Levite. He is not a descendant of Aaron, so he can't function as a priest. So what is David doing here? Well, David understands a broader priesthood, and that is the Melchizedekian priesthood, which was a Gentile priesthood where you had what? You had the role of priest and king united in one individual. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David understands that this, his role as king foreshadows and pictures an even greater concept of kingship which will be fulfilled in the Messiah. This is why you have to go through these important passages of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 which tie all, these, all of these concepts together. So he's sacrificing every six paces. And then in verse 14, And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Now this seems to us a particularly bizarre situation. 
He is dancing with all of his might. He, every ounce of his being is thrown into this dancing, and he is wearing a linen ephod. Now, an ephod is the garment of a priest. So once again, we see David fully is functioning here as a priest, and he's wearing a linen ephod, which is nothing more than a, than a linen nightshirt. There's not a whole lot to it. And David is, is dancing vigorously throughout this whole procession. In verse 15 we read, So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. So it is a tremendous celebration. Then we see in verse 16 that it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now this challenges our concepts of, of protocol and being prim and proper. David is so excited about what's going on. He's not out of line here. He's clearly under the control of the Holy Spirit. This is why it challenges us. But the problem is you have people come along and want to make this normative for the Christian life. It wasn't even normative for David in this situation. This is a picture and a foreshadowing of the enthusiasm and joy that will be present when Jesus Christ finally comes to Jerusalem in victory at the end of the tribulation period. So Michal looks out the window and sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despises him in her heart. She just loses all respect for him. Now, verse 17, this is one of the more humorous little episodes in Scripture, I think. There's a certain irony here. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And then when he finishes, at the end of the day, and this, is, this whole pomp and circumstance has taken all day, when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and he distributed to all the people, to the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to his house. What's happened? Abraham goes and he defeats the, the five kings, and he comes back and he distributes booty. The ark ascends to Mount Zion, and what does David do? David distributes gifts to the people. This is all background for understanding what's happening in Ephesians 4 and the giving of spiritual gifts and why there is the giving of spiritual gifts. And then when David goes home, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, and she just despises him. She has just been just, just seething all day because of this improper uh, demeanor that he's had, dancing and... and um, leaping before the Lord. And she says, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, I just want to throw this in because what she's saying is as he's out there dancing around with this ephod on, he doesn't have anything on underneath, and he hasn't, it hasn't been the most modest of events. And she's ridiculing him for that. The only reason I, I, I'm throwing this in there is because so often we have such rigid little ideas of how we are to conduct ourselves in terms of worship that this really blows our preconceived notions because there's nothing in this that, that indicates that David was ever out of line. In fact, just the opposite. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, 
and above all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. In other words, remember, God chose me. He rejected your father. Just because your father did not do what I've done, uh, don't, don't have disrespect for me for that. Remember, God has chosen me, and I will celebrate before the Lord as I see fit. And then in verse 22, I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and will be humble in my eyes, but with the maids in whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. In other words, you've completely misinterpreted the situation. And the result is that Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, in Old Testament theology, barrenness was a sign of curse from God. So the writer inserts this last verse to point out that in terms of God's view of Michal's criticism of David, she was completely unjust, and she then comes under divine discipline for the rest of her life, and David is the one who who is blessed. So we can't look at this passage and somehow say, well, David just got too excited or too emotional and he was out of line. The text doesn't allow us to, to go there. Okay, we come back now to the beginning of Psalm 68. Psalm 68.1, we have the cry for God to rise up. And in verses 3 and 4, we have a continued praise to God because of his victory. Let the righteous be glad. Let them exalt before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yahweh, and exalt before him. So it goes back to praising God for all the victories that he has given Israel from the time that they were uh, in Egypt through this the present time. This is seen again in verse 7. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. So Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, looks at the ascent of Jesus Christ and visualizes it in terms of Psalm 68, 18. Now, the, inter- the other interesting thing that you should note is in Psalm 68, it is the Lord who ascends. And in Ephesians chapter 4, when David, I mean, when Paul quotes from Ephesians, he applies Psalm 68 to Jesus Christ. That is, in the mind of Paul, Jesus Christ is equal to Yahweh in the Old Testament as the God of Israel. You have a full understanding of the deity of Christ in that passage. Now, Psalm 68 goes on to express the, the whole image of victorious ascent and conquest. This, then, is applied to the ascent of Christ, who, because of the strategic victory of the cross, is then honored by God. He ascends to heaven, and he is seated at the position of honor and respect at the right hand of God the Father. Now, that brings us to the end of that, looking at Psalm 68, and we have to bring in a second aspect, which I want to briefly hit this morning. It's a review for most of you because you were here through through the Daniel series. And that is an understanding of who Jesus is in relationship to uh, his title as the Son of Man. This goes back to an understanding of Daniel and the images and prophecies in Daniel from the, uh, Im- the image in Daniel chapter 2 to the beasts, the four beasts in Daniel chapter 
uh, 7. Daniel 7, we have the kingdoms of man, four kingdoms of man, represented by four different animals. First, there's the lion with the wings of an eagle. Then there is the lopsided bear. The lion represented Babylon. The lopsided bear represented the Media Persian Empire. And then you had the, uh, the leopard with four heads. And then finally, there was the fourth beast, which was a beast unlike any other beast who had ten horns. These beasts in Daniel 7 represent the essential character of the kingdom, the kingdoms of man throughout history. They are represented as having an essentially bestial nature. See, we want to think of man as somewhat glorious, and we want to go back and look at the glories of Greece and the glories of Rome and the glories of the United States or whatever empire you wish to go to, and we want to think that at their highest form they somehow represented something positive and valuable. And yet when God gives us his interpretation of all of these human empires, they are represented as bestial. Why? Because man is fallen. Even at our best, we don't rise to the level of true humanity. In contrast to this, what we'll see in Daniel 7 is that there arises, there arises an individual who is known as the Son of Man. So the fifth kingdom and final kingdom in human history is the kingdom of the Son of Man. It is represented as true humanity and what man was designed to be. Now, in the first few verses of Daniel 7, there's the recitation of the, the four kingdoms in history. And then Daniel says, as he has this vision, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is God the Father taking his seat, and it's a picture of his uh, judicial role at, on his throne. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were burning fire. In verse 10, river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. So this has, again, that legal aspect. Remember, in the call for God to rise up, it's a call to the Supreme Court of Heaven. Daniel 7 picks up this same imagery of the Supreme Court of Heaven and the function of God in his justice. And then in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is a reference to another individual, not the Ancient of Days. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be, be destroyed. Now, one of the things we have to note here is that this is going to be, first of all, a kingdom that is truly multicultural. Notice how Satan always wants to counterfeit everything, so now we have Satan's counterfeit trying to, on the basis of uh, human techniques, develop multiculturalism and multinationalism, but it's based on pure relativism, and it is an enemy of the truth. It is only when you have the establishment of a kingdom on the basis of the justice of God, verse 13, or verse 12 and uh, earlier, that you will have a truly multicultural and multinational uh, kingdom. 
So this kingdom is set up. It has a broader perspective than simply king of Israel. This isn't simply Jesus is the son of David, but he is going to have a kingdom that goes beyond that that relates to being the king of all mankind, developing a people from every tribe and every nation. So that is something distinct from Israel. So even though it's not talking about the church, you clearly see that when you unpack that in terms of New Testament revelation, that this is what's implicit here is the church. The second thing that's implicit here is that there is a time when there when he doesn't have the kingdom. There is a that implies a waiting period, that there is a time when he doesn't have the kingdom and a specific point in time when he is given the kingdom and then he establishes the kingdom. Verse 18, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. It is a, there is a point in time when this kingdom is given. And before that, it is not given, and there is no kingdom. And that sets the stage for the session. This is what's going on now, is a precursor to Jesus Christ being given the kingdom. So what God is doing in history right now is developing a unique people, the church, which includes people from every nation. Remember, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. From every nation, every people. And this is going to be the foundation then for the rulership of that kingdom when it comes. But we're not there yet. Well, we'll stop here at the end of Daniel 7. We're picking up these main ideas that are all woven together by New Testament authors when when they, quote, go back to these psalms. And we'll come back next time, review this again. I know this is... This is new material for for many of you. It's putting this together in a slightly different way for some of you. And we've got to make sure we lay this foundation. As I said earlier, the New Testament writers keep going back to these same psalms, these same principles, as the foundation for everything they teach on what Jesus Christ is now doing in heaven and what he is ultimately accomplishing through the church. So we'll come back next time and go through Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 before we finish laying the foundation for our study on spiritual gifts with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the fact that all of this speaks of your grace and everything that you have done, your, your grace uh, to the Jews in the Old Testament, your grace in providing salvation, your grace in calling out a new people, the church, and your grace in providing church-age believers with all that they have. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who may be unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. If you are here this morning and you have no idea where you will spend eternity, all you need to do is to trust exclusively in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the means of salvation. When you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to you His perfect righteousness, and it is on the basis of His righteousness that you are justified and saved. It's not on the basis of works of righteousness which we have done, but on the basis of His perfect righteousness. 
So right now, right where you sit, you can have eternal life by simply believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Father, we thank you for the things that you have provided for us. We thank you for such an impressive and intricate plan that has provided and supplied everything for us and has given us such unique blessings and benefits in this church age. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.